Ephesians 5 and 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands. And let me get over here behind something here while I read the rest of that passage today. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. And therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that, it, but that it should be holy and without blemish. And so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, and of his flesh, and of his bones. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Thank you, and you may be seated. The subject today is God's design for marriage. God's design for marriage. If you think, as I often do, of God as being the architect of the entire universe, then here today in Ephesians chapter 5, you you have his blueprint for marriage, God's blueprint for marriage. Just as when we take our ideas to an architect and he sketches out the plans and brings back the blueprints and the contractor takes those and begins to build the building, whatever it may be, in the same sense here, God the architect has drawn the plans for marriage and he's given us the blueprint. And if you will listen to them, you will be wise because God makes no mistakes. His word is inerrant and infallible. What he says, he actually means. And as a consequence today, I believe this is the plan of the creator for marriage. Now, in Ephesians 5, In this passage that I read to you, there are two words that I want to use today as two main points on which I'll hang the entire message today. Two points. If you will get them and listen to them and practice them, I guarantee you that your marriage will improve. I don't care if you've been married 51 years like Jim and Kathy here a moment ago. I don't care how long you've been married or I don't care if you're a brand new married person. You can improve. None of us are perfect. Norma and I have room for improvement. Just ask her. She will tell you. And uh, you know what? 
Every one of us can improve, and here's the blueprint for having that wonderful marriage, that joyful life that we all want together. Now look with me in your text. In verse 21 and verse 22 and verse 24, you will find the word submission or submit. And that, so you'll find that three times. In verse 25, twice. In verse 28, twice. And in verse 33, once you will find the word love. So three times it says submission. Five times it says love. You will also notice if you want to outline this in your Bible that there are four verses here that are directed to the wife, to the wives, four verses. There are nine verses directed to we men. So fellas, The Lord wanted to give us more instruction than he did the women. I guess he thought we needed it, huh? So four verses directed to the wife and nine verses directed to the husband. In our society today, to mention the word submission, well, you may be spoiling for a fight. A few years ago at the Southern Baptist Convention, they passed a resolution that talked about that in the biblical plan of marriage, There was to be submission by the wife and love by the husband, and they went in, you know, they wrote a little resolution and passed it because at that time there was some controversy going on about marriage. My soul, you should have heard the news media in the days and weeks that followed. You would think that every Baptist believes that me, Tarzan, you, Jane, and we just beat our wife up and drag her around by the hair of the head, and and we said that was what the Bible taught. Obviously, that is not true. It's never been true. It never will be true. That was the liberal media distorting what the Southern Baptist Convention actually passed. But, boy, there's a lot of people that feel that way now. With the advent of the feminist movement back in the 60s and 70s, uh, we have this gender gap. This idea that we've got men against women is just one more of many ways, unfortunately, today that the country has been divided. Over and over, we've divided our nation. And we even have men versus women. And instead of looking at the architect's blueprint, we have followed the secularist blueprint largely. It was many, many years ago, I was a young preacher. I don't know, I'd been here eight, 10 years maybe. And a woman came in, and they, a man, and they were having marital problems. And I began to talk to them. And I got to this passage about submission. I began to teach it to this couple. Boy, they were fighting. They were at odds with each other. They were ready to walk. And the woman said to me, look me right in the eye with anger in her eyes. She pointed her fa- finger, and she said, Pastor, my mama told me don't ever let some man tell you what to do. And I thought, boy, where do I go from here? That doesn't leave much negotiating room, does it? (laughs) Mama told me, and I'm going to carry it out. Not too long ago, a couple of years ago, I guess, there's a young actress out in Hollywood who claims to be a Christian. She used to be on that sitcom back in the 90s, Full House, and she was a teenager then. And she's a Christian. And she was on this morning show, I think it is the morning show, early on in the morning on television, and um, 
They asked her about her marriage, and she said, you know, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. And I believe that a Christian wife ought to live in submission to her husband. I submit to my husband. Oh, man. She threw herself to the wolves that morning. I mean, they attacked her. And basically, you know who attacked her? The women on that show attacked her because that is so foreign to the world's thinking today. If you're not really anchored in the Scripture and want to please the Lord, then to you, this is an absurdity. This is, uh, where did you get that stuff? Let me begin by trying to correct some ideas that people have that are false ideas about what submission really means. Particularly, I hope you younger women will listen. I don't think you'll have time to write them down. I've got nine of them. Nine false perceptions of what it means to submit, what submission is, because there's all these false ideas and beliefs about the biblical doctrine of submission. Number one, submission is not being the doormat for your husband to walk all over you. That's not what the Bible's teaching. Number two, being submissive our submission is not being submissive to all men in general, just your husband. Twice here in this passage, it says your own husband. Number three, submission is not teaching here that women are inferior to men or that the wife is inferior to the husband. In fact, I think women are superior I figured I'd hear feminine voices in a great chorus there. Women are superior at being women. And men are superior at being what God made them to be as well. Submission is not always being in agreement. You know, you could be in submission. You can still debate something. You can argue. Ask Norma and I. We do that sometimes. But that doesn't mean that she's in a rebellion against her husband. She has an opinion. I have an opinion. And it takes us a little while to reconcile them sometimes. Number five, submission is, is not meaning that you no longer think for yourself. Submission is not the bride leaving her brain on the marriage altar and never thinking again. Absolutely not. No, no, never, no. Submission is still thinking. In fact, to go to another one, submission is not a personality killer. You don't lose your personality as a lady if you uh, practice biblical submission. It doesn't mean that you don't try to influence your husband. You have a strong opinion about something, and he maybe thinks a little differently about it, and you, you, you talk to him. You seek to influence him. That's, that's not being out of submission to your husband. That's not violating this passage. It doesn't mean that you put the will of your husband either before the will of God. If he wants you to go get drunk, you tell him, no, I don't do that. I I have an obligation to a higher power. If he wants you to be immoral, you say, absolutely not. I'm God's daughter. I can't do that. My body belongs to him. Your, your submission to your husband never overrides or supersedes the, the submission to your husband. 
I mean to God. And then number nine, it is not absolute. There are limits to submission. I know verse 24 and B, the second part there, sounds like it. It says, let the wives be subject to their husbands in everything. But Colossians has this same parallel passage, and it says, as it is fit in the Lord. And so there are the limits. Again, you always please the Lord more than you seek to please your husband. So in verse number 22, it's just very clear, isn't it? Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Let me explain to you now in the positive what this means. Let's think about the Trinity. We just sung that beautiful, beautiful hymn that's been around for hundreds of years, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. In the Trinity, or the Godhead, Trinity and Godhead meaning the same thing, we have the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit. And it's a perfect model for what I'm talking about here. If you'll get this as a Christian, your very basic Christian faith will direct you to understand what submission truly means. You see, the members of the Trinity are equal. One is not inferior to the other. God the Father is not inferior to the God the Son, nor God the Son to God the Holy Spirit. All the members of the Trinity, all the doctrinal statements of the Christian faith says they are co-equal, co-equal. Each of them is the same in their nature. They're three equal persons, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of the same nature. How do I illustrate that to a congregation of people today? And the best illustration I've ever stumbled upon is H. O, the chemical formula for three different things. There are three different things that are H2O. And at normal room temperature, H2O becomes a liquid and we can't live without it. It's water. And then I freeze that and get it below 32 degrees Fahrenheit and it becomes a solid. And then I put it in a pot and I boil it and the vapor comes up and it is still H2O. All three of those things, water, ice, vapor, all three of them are H2O. They have the same nature. They're of the same essence, and yet they're diverse. They're not the same. The liquid, the solid, and the vapor. And so they're diverse in their appearance and in their function and form, but they are the same in their basic essence and in their nature. Now, let's apply that. We are made in the image of God. We are the handiwork of God, a man and a woman. In Genesis, it says God created man in his image. He doesn't mean the male there. It's a generic word meaning mankind. God created man. That's our essence. That's our H2O. That's our nature. And then we're diverse. He made them male and he made them female, it says in the very same verse. So here we are the same. Norma and I are the same in nature. We are diverse, male and female. And that's the way it is at your house too, I think. And so you see, there's this equality in the Trinity, and there's this equality of men and women. 
Man is not better than woman, nor woman than man. We are co-equals, but we are different. We are male and female, even as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are co-equal. They're equal in their nature and in their essence, but they are diverse. God the Father, God the Son, who became a man in human flesh, God the Holy Spirit, three different forms, three different manifestations of the same essence. Has everybody got that? Say amen if you do. Now, if you get that, if you understand the Trinity, you can understand marriage. Isn't that strange that God would put it like that? And so here we have Jesus, equal to the Father. He said, I and my Father are one, did he not? But wait a minute. He submits to his Father. See, there's submission in the Trinity. And the submission doesn't speak of their nature. He's not inferior to his Father. It speaks of his function. It speaks of his order. It speaks of his role and his responsibilities. And he is not inferior in any way, but he is submissive. John chapter 6 and verse 38. Or pardon me. Let me back up on my outline here. I'm not following it very closely. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn back there with me. I'm not going to turn you too many times, but I want you to go in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. The head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. You see a certain hierarchy there. You see God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of the woman. She's not inferior. She's not less, but it's roles. Christ is not inferior to God. And so that applies right across the board here. You take the Trinity. And that wonderful verse right there shows that. It bears that out. Now, Jesus over and over said, I submit to my Father. And so John 6 and 38, Jesus said, I came not down from heaven to do my will, but I came to do the will of my Father. You see, that's submission. That's Jesus Christ functioning in a different way than his Father, equal to him but submissive to him. Matthew 26 and 39, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and as he prays and sweats drops of blood in agony, the stress and pressure of the sin of all mankind is upon his beloved face. And Jesus Christ said, I came not to do my will. I came to submit myself to the will of God. That's why I'm going to the cross, because God willed that I be there. And in Philippians chapter 2, that very famous passage of Scripture we quote so often, where Jesus Christ, it says, he humbled himself and became obedient to the death of the cross. And he submitted himself to his Father's will. Over and over and over, I could give you many more. In the same way, the Holy Spirit is, submits to Jesus Christ. So you have God the Father, who is the only being I can think of in the whole universe who has not submitted to anybody. 
You have God the Father. You have Jesus equal with him in his personhood and essence, but submissive to him. Then you have the same with the Holy Spirit. And then you have the man, if you're going to the family uh, uh, outline here. So you have the man, and then you have the woman, and you have the children, and so on. And in almost throughout all of life, we have these structures. And the reason for that, of course, is to have order, to have form to not have chaos. Now look in verse 21 of Ephesians 5 with me. I want you to really take that in for a moment. Ephesians 5 and 21, submitting yourselves one to another. You see, this is not just for the women. This is a spirit of submission, an attitude of submission, where that every one of us ought to cultivate that you can tell it when you're around people that have that, they exude an, an, an aroma of Christ that is so different than the spirit of the world today that draws itself up and is always on the defense, always ready to defend itself. And my home ought to exude the aroma of submission. It means by, I mean by that, that, uh, There are situations and times that I ought to say, okay, Norma, I want, I'm I'm going to do what you are suggesting right here. I don't always have to be right. I don't always have to be the boss. Now, the flesh wants us to do that, doesn't it? And so to submit ourselves to one another, by the way, that's true in the church. That's true in life. That's having the aroma of Jesus Christ, that the will is crushed in order that we seek always to please the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in our home, Norman and I are equals, as I've said, but we have different roles and we have different functions. And so there's got to be that spirit there, there, or there will be antagonism. Now go to chapter 5 and verse 23. And I've got to really pick it up here. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. The word head there, make you a little line out there somewhere and put you a note. Head means leader. Head means leader. It means God has given the husband, the father, authority in the home model. Just as Almighty God has the authority in the Trinity model. And then Jesus is given authority and he comes and stands before his apostles in Matthew 28. When he gives the Great Commission, what does he say? All authority is given unto me. Look it up, Matthew 28 and 18. Not right now, but sometime. All authority is given to me. Well, who gave Jesus authority? His father would be the only one who could even, who we could even put into that picture. So headship means authority. Headship means leadership. And he gives that to other positions in life. But it doesn't mean that we have to dominate. It doesn't mean we have to crush people to have our way to offend our mate. No, no, no. That's not the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 23 then of Ephesians 5, it says, Christ is the head of the church. And then It uses a parallel. The husband is the head of the family, the the leader under Christ. 
And in verse 22, the wives are to submit to their own husbands as unto the Lord. And the children, look over in 6.1, children obey your parents. And so children are to submit to their parents. Boy, God knows we need a lot of people to read that. And you know what? This is common sense. This is common sense until the feminists came along. This was just common sense. Everybody pretty well accepted this. This is the way the world is. This is the way it was made. God designed this. He gave certain functions to people. This is not a chain of command. This is not the military. This is a line of responsibility. Big difference. Not a chain of command, a line of responsibility. And you see, if we violate this, then count on it, you're going to have chaos and trouble in your marriage. You're going to have trouble in your marriage. There's an old saying, you've heard me say it a hundred times. Anything with two heads is a freak. And anything with no head is dead. There's wisdom in that, children. Anything with two heads is a freak. And a marriage that thinks it has two heads is a freak. And if it has no head, it's dead. There's got to be somebody that says, I'll be the leader. I'll take the responsibility. And God said, I want the man to do that. Now, I know that is contrary to everything you're hearing on the news and reading in the magazines and watching on the sitcoms and all that stuff. I know that's totally contrary, but you have to decide if God's word means what it says. You know, Jesus is the head. Jesus has never made me do one thing. Stop and think about that. Jesus never made me do one thing. He's asked me to do things. He's commanded me to do things, but he's never made me do anything. Norman and I have been married over 50 years. I've never made her do anything. Not one time have I made her do anything. I'm not bragging. It's just just fact. You can ask her. You better say yes. I have never made her do anything. If she says, I don't want to do that, it's not my role to think that authority means I'm to command everybody around, a chain of command. You do it. This is an order. No, 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 no. That's not the spirit of the Bible. It's not a chain of command. It's a line of responsibility. And God gave me the responsibility. He gave you and me the responsibility to obey him. If we don't do it, then we're responsible, aren't we? Now, submission doesn't stop in the home. One other thing real quickly. It doesn't stop in the home. You see, if it is so necessary that our children see this and that people see us model this. Uh, because they're going to have to learn it somewhere in life. Because you look here in your scripture and you go over there to chapter 6 and verse 1. Children, obey your parents. See? So children need to learn this early on. You, you, you must, you must uh, cause your children to obey. This is right, it says in verse 1. 
You teach them to honor their father and mother. That's respect for them. And then you go down to verse 5, and it talks about servants. Now, basically in our day, servants there, you could connote that to employers. And so you better learn submission when you go get a job because you're probably going to have a boss, and he's going to tell you what to do. And if you don't submit, he's going to suggest that you find a job somewhere else. So you might as well learn it. It doesn't mean the boss is better than you. It means he has headship. He is in charge. He has authority. And uh, in the church, he gave it to the spiritual leadership, the appointed spiritual leadership. Everybody can't lead the church. And you can go even into general society. Read uh, Romans chapter 13. And it says that as a citizen, I'm under the authority of the magistrates and the law enforcement and the governmental officials. And thank God we have this republic where, where we can protest and we can work and seek to influence the decisions. But when the police officer pulls me over and says, Mr. Monroe, do you know what the speed limit is? I have to submit to him. And so throughout life, we have these roles, these functions, these lines of responsibility. And as Christians, God wants us to recognize those things. And the basis for it is we want to please the Lord. I heard a lady speak, and she said, I don't submit to my husband because he's my husband. I submit to my husband because that's the way I submit to God. Because you see, here's what somebody will say. Oh, my husband, if you knew him. He doesn't do, and she begins to blame him. My friend, my dear lady friend, you can't blame it on your husband. God's very explicit in what he says for you to do. And I believe if you will do that, he'll work the rest out for you. He'll take care of that. He'll take care of the consequences of your obedience. Now, Look what it says to the man there in verse 25. Love. Love. Five times, love your wife. Love your wife. Love your wife. Look at verse 25. Love her even as. Circle those two words. Because that's a comparative. He's given us a pattern. He's given us a model. As Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Have you ever thought about how Jesus loved the church? Well, number one, he loved the church unconditionally. He loved the church unconditionally. And men, it's our job as Christians to learn to love our wives unconditionally. I like that little part of the marriage ceremony. Well, you take this woman and you go ahead and they're holding their hands, they're making their vows together, the couple, in sickness and in health, in poverty when we don't have anything, or in wealth, in the bad, bad times that darken our days, and in the good times that brighten our way. And I will be true to you as long as I live. You see, unconditionally. 
Perhaps it's impossible for a human being to love unconditionally. I don't know. I, I sometimes think it is. That maybe only the Lord can love unconditionally. That's a big word. But it ought to be my goal, my aspiration, that I love my wife without condition. You see, young person, someday you're going to be old. And neither one of you are going to be as attractive as you were the day you walk down the aisle. And someday somebody's going to get sick, real sick. And their hair might fall out. And they might not be able to walk. And other things will come along and it'll be so unpleasant. But unconditional love will weather that. Think long and hard before you get married. (laughs) project it ahead about 50 or 60 years and say, it's not going to be like it is today. When I'm swept, reality is going to come in and things are going to change. Do, can I love her unconditionally? Number two, how did Christ love his church? He loved it sacrificially. Look in verse 25. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. What is sacrificial love? Let me tell you what sacrificial love is. When my wife says, you need to mow the yard, and my favorite team is playing ball, and it's 90 degrees outside, that's sacrificial love. See, Christ gave himself for it. He died for the church. He shed his blood. He ended his life. He went through horrible torture and pain. We are not often called upon to do that as husbands. We should be willing to die for our wife if called upon, but probably we're not going to be called upon to die for her. So how does that apply in real life? It means in small things, relatively small. Not things that are life changers and game changers, but relatively small things. But she has a need, and I try to meet it. And I give myself. I sacrifice what I would prefer to be doing and rather be doing. I sacrifice that for her. And I do that over and over and over through the years. Verse 26 Christ loved the church purposefully, purposefully. His goal there in verse 27 for his church is that he could present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle. What are spots? Jesus is trying to get the spots out of his church. By the way, the Florence Baptist Temple, he'd like to get the spots out of it. What are the spots referred to here? They're the little imperfections. So the husband and wife ought to be Seeking to build each other up, to help each other become more of what each other can, can be. Not, not to just live with flaws, but to be purposeful, to seek to help each other overcome their imperfections and their weaknesses. Then it talks about wrinkles. What are wrinkles? Well, they're the things that need to be ironed out. <laughs> you iron out the wrinkles, don't you? 
And the wrinkles cause friction. The wrinkle, you iron the sheet because it causes the friction. You iron the shirt to, uh, to, to, to get rid of those imperfections. And so after living together a lifetime, don't you think that I ought to be a better man because of my wife? And don't you think she ought to be a better woman because she lived with me? That we have helped each other get rid of those weaknesses that we all have and we both have, just like the Lord is seeking to improve and lift and build his church, so we, husbands and wives, are working to encourage each other and help each other. My goal as a husband ought to be to help my wife become a more godly woman, a more Christ-like woman. That's my God-given role. And then verse 29, look, he loved the church sensitively. Verse 29, nobody ever hated his own flesh, but he nourisheth and cherisheth it. Look at the word nourish and circle there in your Bible. It comes from the word nutrition. You see that same root there, don't you? Nutrition, meaning to feed, to help, to grow, to nourish someone. And then look at the word cherish. And the word cherish there has the idea like a nurse would tenderly minister to and care for a patient or a mother would cradle a newborn baby. And in the same way, I'm to love my wife sensitively. I'm to cradle her emotionally. I'm to take the blows. I am to do everything I can to build her and lift her and nourish her. She's God's daughter. I heard Joseph Tan say that, and I've never gotten over that phrase. He said, men, look at your wife not as just a woman. She is God's daughter, and he wants you to treat his daughter well. Wow, what a powerful statement. And lastly, in verse 31, Christ loved the church supremely. Supremely, he gave his life for it. You can't love, greater, greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for someone else. And Jesus Christ loved his church supremely. I am to love my bride supremely. And you see that in verse 31 where it says, leave your parents, leave your birth family, and be joined, priority, be joined to your wife that's the pri- she becomes the priority relationship in life. She's number one. By the way, she comes before the kids. We haven't even gotten to the children yet. God hasn't even brought them into the picture. That's chapter six. She's number one. Now, let me tell you, men, I really believe this. I've pastored for 48 and a half years. I've talked to thousands and thousands of people, and I've read a lot of books. I've heard, been to the seminars. I got the T-shirt. I've seen it all. And here's what I want to tell you. When a husband doesn't love his wife this way, it's difficult for the wife to be submissive to him. If you and I, we husbands, go home and love our wives like Christ loved the church, I'm going to tell you something most wives are going to be very responsive. She's looking for that. She's been on a search all her life to find a man like that. She's going to thank God every day that she's got somebody that truly 
puts her interest first, that loves her more than he loves himself. So men, the only thing I could say to you is go home and lead your wife through love. Lead her lovingly. And when you do, I believe God is going to work out the spots and wrinkles in that marriage, whatever they may be. Now, Friday night, we had this women's event. And my wife came and said, they want me to do my testimony. And I said, I think you should do it. And she said, well, I don't know. People have heard that. I said, do it. Norma, do it. And so she finally decided she would do it. And she gave her testimony here. And everybody told me she did a good job, which I knew she would. But she's not aspiring to be the associate pastor of this church, I promise you. But I wanted her to give her testimony for this reason. She grew up at the First Baptist Church of Fort Worth wonderful church. The pastor preached the gospel. She sat there and heard it. They had a meeting with a very famous internationally known preacher. He came and preached, and Norma made a profession, and she got baptized. And her mom and dad were Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. When they could, they worked some, but Sunday morning, Sunday night, church people. And she went there all the time. She went to VBS. She went to youth group. She went to it all. I mean, she was cradled in Christianity. And we met and fell in love, and we got married, and she told me she was a Christian. I thought she was. She wasn't doing anything real bad, but she began to drift away. She had lost interest in college. And we got married, and after a while, a year or so later, I told her, Norma, I think God's calling me the ministry. She was not a happy camper. She said, the last thing I want to be on this earth is to be married to a Baptist preacher. And not long after that, we moved to Indianapolis, and I took a job on the staff of a church. And she took a job as a secretary in the church office. And she was in the middle of four or five ladies who worked in that office, and they were the real deal. And God had worked in her life. And Norma came home and said to me once or twice, I don't know if I have what they have. I know all that stuff, but I don't think I have that. I was the minister of music in the church. So I'm directing the choir one Sunday morning up here, and we're singing away on the invitation. I look, there's my wife on the front row. One of the altar workers is sitting beside her and tears running down her face. I hurried up and ended that song and jumped off the platform and ran down there, and I said, Norma, what's going on, honey? She said, I just got saved, Bill. And she said, I just sat there with those women, and I could see that they had what I did not have. And today, I've come to Christ. She had religion. She had morality. But she didn't have Jesus. Will you bow your heads with me right now? 